This podcast is offered by the San Francisco Zen Center on the web at www.sfcc.org. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. I'm going to try and keep this short, partly because it um, it would make sense for me to be spend as little time as possible just blathering away up here, and also because it would be great to um, have a discussion. So we'll see what happens. Right? Um, um, so I decided I was going to talk about a koan and that, and embarrassingly, the, the koan was going to be the first case in the Blue Cliff record, <laughs> which is, you know, it's like everybody says, you know, the Heart Sutra is the most um, chanted piece of Buddhist literature in the entire Mahayana canon, right? Um, well, at least in the Soto Zen school, or at least in this Soto Zen school, the first case in the Blue Cliff record is the most recited case in the entire, you know, um, koan literature. And the reason is that it shows up lots of places, including the, um, the, um, Shuso ceremony, right? Um, and this, this, uh, thought came to mind, like, a number of years ago, I think the last time we did this, um, my family and I went to see the Nutcracker at Christmas, right? And we were sitting there and listening, and it was really, really great. And and uh, there were all these families around, and they were all watching the Nutcracker. And there's a there's a there's a you know there's a well the structure of the Nutcracker is that they do a bunch of stuff, and then kind of near the end they reprise it in these little brief snippets, right? And there's a there's one dance, and I forget exactly what it's called, but essentially the 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 intention is that it sounds a little bit Middle Eastern, and there's this sort of mysterious dance with it, and so on and so forth. And and uh, and the second time it came around, this incredibly adorable little girl that was sitting directly in front of me goes, "Not again!" <laughs> and uh, it was loud enough so they could hear her all the way down on stage, which is really kind of great, actually. But uh, I, I figured that's what everybody was going to say about that. Um, the first case in the Blue Cliff record. But um, I'll try and make it interesting, right? Like, it's about bodhidharma and the the emperor wu and the emperor wu is unquestionably a historical figure um <clears throat> bodhidharma is, is a lot more questionable right and 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 the uh the, you know even even scholars that think that he actually is a historical figure and that's not not everybody thinks that um completely disagree on when he lived, where he lived, where he came from, how he got to China, um, how he moved around once he was in China, whether he really went up to um, to Shaolin or not, and and so on and so forth, right? And and they and then they also recognize every one of them recognizes that a lot of components of his life story are um, a standard life story are totally mythological. Like the the most famous part is. Um, Three years after he died, um, 
an advisor to the emperor um, was walking along and he was actually going to Shaolin to meet with the emperor. And um, he bumped into Bodhidharma on the road and Bodhidharma was walking along with a, um, with a stick over his shoulder and uh, hanging from the shoe, the, the stick was a single shoe, right? And <laughs> the guy says, hey, what are you doing? You're dead. And, and he goes, I'm going back to India. And, uh, and, and he goes, don't tell anybody you see me until you've seen me until you get to Shaolin or things will go very badly for you. And then he, he walks off and disappears. And, uh, so the guy gets all the way to Shaolin and he, then he sits down and he tells the emperor what happened. And, um, the emperor says, you're lying. Um, and, and you can't lie to the emperor, so I'm going to have you executed. And, and, but the, um, just to check the, the, the monks went out and they, they essentially dug up Bodhidharma's grave and they found only a single shoe in the grave <laughs> and various people wrote poems about it. But anyway, so that clearly didn't happen. Right. Uh, but there's a lot of other stuff that might or might not have happened. And the encounter with the emperor Wu is actually one of them. Right. Um, but none of that matters, right? And because the um, the the story is not about being a true story, whether it's true or not. The story the story is about, um, and this is one of the reasons why that it feels mythological, right? It's such a set piece, right? And so it goes like this, right? So. Um, Bodhidharma kind of storms in because he was that kind of guy and, 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 you know, presumably, um, you know, says and, and does something respectful to the emperor. And then, um, and then the emperor says, okay, so I'm this great Buddhist emperor and I've built all these temples and I've translated all, I've paid to have all this stuff translated and I studied really hard and I really know my, my Dharma front to back. What's the what's the merit in that? And, and Bodhidharma goes, there isn't any merit in that. And 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 the emperor says, okay, fine. So what's the um, what's the essential high, the highest? It's it's funny the term, the word he uses actually is the is the is the grading term. Of, it's the term about grading on the civil service exams in China. So what's like what's the highest grade you can get on? <laughs> on the on the holy truths, right? And uh um and Bodhidharma says empty, not holy. Um or maybe even no, it's I was gonna say unholy, but no, it's not unholy, it's sort of not holy. And um interestingly, that's almost the correct answer. <laughs> the the you know, as if you if you poke around and you 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 look for the highest meaning of the holy truths. Generally speaking, at least in the Mahayana canon, it's emptiness, right? So he's not Bodhidharma is not being particularly deceptive about that. But then the emperor, um, who it seems like he might be a little vexed, says something like, "Well, who's standing before me now?" And my guess is that something like, "Who the hell are you?" Right? And Bodhidharma says, "Don't know." And then he walks out, <laughs> and. Uh, 
supposedly crosses the Yangtze River and and ends up in the Kingdom of Wei, where he um, sits and stares at a wall for nine years. Um, and there's some there's some stuff that happens after that. But if you if you look at the at at the set piece there, it's clear what's going on. Like. Um, um, the Emperor Wu represents represents human effort and and um, conventional understanding, right? So he's he's paid to have a whole bunch of conventional understanding delivered to him and his monastic communities, and he's done a lot of reading, and he really he actually knows what the highest meaning of the holy truths are too, because he probably. He studied it carefully enough so that you got a sense of it, right? So, um, and he, and he, he's he's not an unvirtuous guy. He's engaged in all this um, inc incredibly virtuous, helpful effort. And he's and he was, you know, there's a there's a little tendency on the part of people who read and study this koan to kind of be dismissive of the Emperor Wu, but that that would be a mistake. He's actually kind of awesome, right? And um, and so if that's true, if he represents conventional understanding, um, you, you know, kind of the the sort of standard def definition of human right effort, um, even even in the human right effort in the presence of a, of a kind of privilege that allowed him to have a pretty broad scope, right? Um, what does Bodhidharma represent, right? Bodhidharma represents the ungraspable and the unknowable, right? And so the, and here the, you have these two people that are, you know, the mouthpiece for conventional understanding and the ungraspable standing up and having an exchange, right? Does that sound like mythology? Yeah, maybe, <laughs> But in any case, um, that's what it's about. And, and, it's, and it's intentionally about that. And, and it's not like it's the only case in, the literature that has that flavor. Like if you look just a few cases later in the in the Blue Cliff record, there's a story of um what is it, Dushan. And you know, he goes to he he's a he's a famous Buddhist scholar and an expert in the Diamond Sutra. And he he uh he hears about the Southern school and he's incensed and he's like, he, he, so he straps on his straw sandals and he hold, throws the scrolls that have his commentaries on the diamond sutra in, in a backpack and he storms off to the South and somewhere way down South, he meets this, um, he, he found, finds a roadside tea shop and he goes in and he said, I need some tea and cookies for refreshment. And, uh, the tea lady is like, Hey, what is that in your backpack? And he goes, I'm a famous Buddhist scholar. These are my commentaries on the Diamond Sutra. And she goes, oh, well, Diamond Sutra says, um, you know, um, present mind is ungraspable, past mind is ungraspable, future mind is ungraspable. What exactly are you trying to refresh? If you can answer me, I'll give you some tea and cookies. Otherwise, get the hell out of my shop. And, and he's like, Whoa! and so... Um, she throws him out. And then he ends up going to see this guy, uh, Lung Tan, which means, I think, Dragon Pond. And he storms in and says, you know, 
I mean, I'm here, but I don't see any dragon and I don't see any pond. And they they kind of go around. And after a while, um, they have this exchange, um, which maybe I'll describe in a bit. And um, and he has a moment of realization, right? And, and so he gets up in the morning, and this is not the only person that's ever done this in the history of, of uh, the Zen koan literature, and he burns all his commentaries on the Diamond Sutra and, and walks off to, um, to you know, find a teacher or something like that. And that's, you know, that's that story. And then there's, there's also, um, I think it's um, Chang Yun and, um, He was studying with Kuaishan, I think, and and just he also was a scholar, and he never kind of got it, and he had trouble. Um, he, he was really stalled in his practice, and he got more and more miserable, and finally left, and he went and became the maintenance guy on a on a uh, memorial shrine, and and the story is one day he uh, he kicks up a. Um, kicks up a stone with a with his broom and it hits a piece of bamboo and it makes this sort of noise and uh and he wakes up and he he immediately goes and puts on his robe and bows in the direction of his teacher way off there mount question right and uh and he writes this poem that says something like ah, i'm so grateful if you'd explained it to me i would never have gotten it <laughs> so it's it's a persistent theme. That what that case is in the is like I think case five in the uh, in the Mumon Khan, right? Um, the the standing up conventional understanding and cognition against um, the ungraspable and realization, right? Um, and I have to say it's tempting to conclude from those cases that the, the compilers of the Cohen literature were sort of deprecating conventional cognition, but, and understanding, but I think that's completely untrue, right? Like if you look at, if you look at the Buddhist philosophical system and all the things that people say in in, in the koans and um, and the commentaries and everything else. There's a lot of conventional understanding involved, and it's they're full of the the Buddhist texts of the day, and you know the Mahayana texts that they were all reading are are full of dualistic schemas and um, and and you know. Uh, programs for practice and all the rest of that sort of thing. They're really, they're, they're loaded with conventional knowledge and understanding. Right? Um, and fundamentally, as far as I can tell, nobody has a problem with that. The, it's more like, how many people here went to Hampshire College? Any of you? I, I know Catherine did, but I don't think she's here. <laughs> So you know what you know what the uh, um, motto of Hampshire College is, right? It's uh, it's non satisfire, which means to know is not enough, right? And I, I think it's more like to know is not enough, right? Like 
understanding in the conventional sense and realization are not the same thing, right? And 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 if you if you focus on conventional understanding, it actually ends up being a distraction from the practice that you need to engage in to um, to have a more fully yeah more comprehensive and 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 full realization of what it actually is to be human right that's kind of what it comes down to and so um the the interesting thing about conventional understanding and and realization is even though they're not the same they're definitely complementary right and if you look at um if you look at the at the comments both on these cons that I was just talking about and you know pretty much everywhere else they basically say and Dogen says this too right he says cease from practice based on intellectual understanding yeah exactly but um that's not the same as saying abandon intellectual understanding it's more like if you practice diligently the relationship between intellectual or conventional understanding and um, and realization becomes clear, and and the the commentators also say, and if you don't do that, you'll never get it in a million years. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the San Francisco Zen Center. Our Dharma talks are offered free of charge, and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your financial support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information, please visit sfzc.org and click Giving. May we fully enjoy the Dharma.